Today on the Johnny Kerberg Show, is there scientific evidence for life after death? Numerous studies have been performed to evaluate the accounts of people who have been pronounced clinically dead when their doctors saw no heartbeat, that is no EKG, or no brain activity, that is no EEG, or both. Yet after a while, the patient amazingly returned to life with some fantastic accounts of where they had been and what they had seen and heard. Some saw and heard people say and do things five states away, but their material physical bodies never left the room where the doctors pronounced them dead. Many do not realize that between 9 and 20 million Americans have reported near-death experiences according to the 2017 book The Science of Near-Death Experiences by the prestigious University of Missouri Press, a highly acclaimed book that is the world's first peer-reviewed series on the science and medical aspects of NDEs by medical professionals. Such experiences compel scientists to ask, is there more to our lives than just our material bodies? If so, what is it? What happens when a person has a sense that their mind or consciousness is functioning apart from their physical body? Or when their consciousness is in the vicinity of their physical body and then goes and sees and hears things 1,250 miles away? Is it proof that after our material bodies die, we still continue to exist somewhere? If so, where do we go? In our three-program series with Dr. Gary Habermas, he reveals stories and statistics that point to a spiritual realm. And since Jesus died and physically rose again, where does he say we will go when we die? Dr. Habermas takes us through six levels of near-death experiences, from near-death experiences in the ambulance to near-death experiences from the congenitally blind people who see something real, like colors people are wearing, to heart death, to brain death, and eventually to irreversible biological death experiences. So join us for this special edition of The John Akerberg Show. Welcome to our program. I'm John Ankerberg. Thanks for joining me. As you just heard, my guest is Dr. Gary Habermas. He's an expert on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the fact is he is tracking the top scholars in the world, 4,000 of them. And of the 4,000 top scholars, he says the most influential, 2,000 of those, those are the ones he's quoting for information. What are the facts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that they all agree to, 95% of them, whether they're skeptics, atheists, Buddhists, Jewish, whatever, the fact is these are people that say these are true facts, historical facts, all right? But I'm not going to believe it, okay? What else should you consider, all right? And we're going to talk about what about near-death experience, NDEs, okay? Because this has gone from just silly talk to people, medical doctors, professionals, actually tracking the evidence with their machines and 
Dr. Habermas is going to talk about some of the data that has been collected. So scholars looking at what we're going to tell you today, here's what some of the skeptics say about the evidence we're going to present to you about near-death experiences, what happened to these people, okay? Here is John Beloff. He is writing in the Humanist magazine, all right? He's a skeptic, and he says this, that evidence for an afterlife was so strong that humanists should just admit it and attempt to interpret it in naturalistic terms. Anthony Flew, who for 40 years was the world's foremost atheist, okay? And Gary and I, we both knew him. We actually, I did a program with Gary where we did eight debate programs with Anthony Flew, okay, when he was a solid atheist, all right? He looked at near-death experiences and said this, the evidence equally certainly weakens if it does not completely refute my arguments against doctrines of a future life. Now, what is that evidence? That's what we want you to hear today. And most of you have not heard the kind of evidence that Dr. Habermas is going to present. He did his PhD at Michigan State on the resurrection in 1976. Almost about that time, or just a little bit after, he also started thinking about near-death experiences. How does this relate to what is being said about the resurrection? Does it add something to the credibility of an afterlife? And you tell me how you got into this. Well, that's exactly how I got into it. That if I'm going to study resurrection, and if that makes us talk about another realm, so that probably the most frequent critique today from skeptics is not, oh, I think such and such a naturalistic theory explains the resurrection. It's, well, yeah, you've piled up some, like John Beloff, you've, you've piled up some pretty good evidence here, but you're asking me to believe in Narnia. You're asking me to believe in, in Oz. I don't know a world like that. I've never been there. So I think that something else besides resurrection must have happened. So what, what NDEs did for me was, in fact, I, I often start lectures on NDEs like this. I'll say, what if I told you folks that there is a Narnia? Yeah, that's C.S. Lewis's term for heaven, okay? Sure. Uh, you know, right. How would you like to meet Aslan someday? We go, oh, that's cool. Ha ha. Nice story. We call that fiction. Well, how do we know if there's a realm like that? I think to open up that realm, and if you say, wow, there really is something, I think it should make us more open to resurrection. So that's how I got into it. And one way, just recently, the, the latest book on near-death experiences was published by the University of Missouri Press. So we're not talking some fictional dime store book. Um, a serious book edited by a medical doctor. Many authors in there are medical doctors. And they decide, you can get this right on the beginning of the book, that 9 to 20 million Americans have had near-death experiences. Yeah, let me say that again. I mean, this is a, I've got the statement right here. Between 9 and 20 million Americans have had near-death experiences. Now, now some, it might just be right there in the room, and you're looking at your own bed or the bed in the hospital. But a number of them, people believe they are elsewhere. So I'm thinking to myself, if there's 9 to 20, let's say an average 13, 14 million, how many of them think they were in another realm? 
Well, millions. So you may not have seen Narnia. I may not have been to Oz, but we have millions of Americans who say, uh, do you want to talk to me? I've been there. So that's what's on the line is data here for another realm which could last forever. Okay, tell me some of the personal stories that you've been involved in, uh, just to get our attention on this, and right. then I want to get down to some of the ones that uh, have actually been tracked and the data is absolutely solid sure. in some of the most professional books we've got. Yeah, I think that's a good insight, what you just said. People are, are impressed with evidence. When I've, I've been doing this for a long time with the NDEs, and sometimes people are more than the evidence. They're impressed with the heartwarming or the tear-jerking type NDE stories. Now, here's one of them. Uh, I met a lady who had just given birth to her third child, and she has not seen this child yet because they're still in surgery, and they're taking the child. And she said, all of a sudden, boom, I'm up above my body. And it wasn't a detailed NDE. She looked down, she said, that looks like I might be me. But then again, I'm where my consciousness is, so I think I'm up here in the lights, I'm up here by the ceiling. And she started to say, well, I went on a little bit further from there. And I, I stopped her and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, I've, I've been led to believe that the strongest biological tie in the universe is between a mother and her child. And mm -hmm. she said, I'll buy that. And I said, okay, you've got some other children. Yes, you haven't seen this baby yet. Nobody's come up and laid the baby in your arms. No, you'd like to see your baby, wouldn't you? Absolutely. So you're in another realm and you are caught up with the colors and the music and the sound and it just captivated you. Did you wanna come back to meet your new child? And, and you would think I had said something to her that kind of embarrassed her. Because when I said that, she looked down and she said, no, I did not want to come back. And I said, look, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but let me just drive this point home. You would rather have stayed where you were than come back to see your baby for the first time. And she said, I did. I wanted people to leave me alone and let me go. Now, that was an amazing insight. A couple other times, well, I, I know another case where a woman was delivering a baby and she was up above her body, she said, and it was only seconds. And I said, well, okay, so it was only seconds. What kind of an effect did it have on you? And that one said, she said, well, I know I was going somewhere else. I know if time had moved on, I'd have been heading up because that was my move from my delivery up to the ceiling. She said, ever since then, she said, I've not had the slightest fear of death because I know I'm going to another place. Then two guys, one who drowned in a pool and one who was in a really bad car accident. In both cases, they had near-death experiences. And the, the first one, he lived out west in a real icy part of the country, actually it was in Idaho. And he said, I was walking on the street recently and I, my feet started to go off from under me in the winter time and I had this sick feeling we sometimes have that my back of my head is going to end up on the cement behind me. And he, before he could even, he had already slipped. And be, the first thought was, oh no. The second thought was, don't worry, you're going right back to the place you were at before. Now how conscious do you have to be that your first thought is, uh oh, second thought, hey, that's cool. And the other one was in the car accident. 
I said to the fellow later, I've gotten to know that guy really, really well, and I was saying to him, hey, what about this and that and this and that about life? And he's getting older, and he said to me, not a problem. All I will do is go back to the light again. He's committed Christian. He said, all I would do is go back to the light. And I thought, is it that prominent when people have had these that their very first thought is, here it comes, and I'm ready. So that otherworldliness is pervasive. Is it always a good one? No. No. Now, there's issues with that because now my next question, you know, would be how much do we have evidence for? But uh, I heard one uh, medical doctor who studied Indies tell me that uh, half of his cases were hellish cases. On the, on the average of the more technical essays, the number of hellish cases is down around 19 to 21 percent. Now, of course, one comeback to that is if you thought you went to hell, would you talk about it? You know, yeah. it's like I had a skeptical doctor. In other words, a doctor that didn't believe in Jesus, didn't believe anything. Okay. And he was cardiologist. Okay. Right. And a guy's on the treadmill doing his stress test in the office yep. and he dropped over. Okay. So he started doing resuscitation and the guy would come back every once in a while as he was resuscitating him. You'd come out of it and, uh, and he was absolutely paralyzed with fear. Okay, and he says, doctor, doctor, I'm in hell. You got to save me. And then all of a sudden he'd slip back. So he's pounding on his heart again. Okay, and the guy would come back. And he said, pray for me. Now, this guy's an atheist. Okay, he doesn't believe in God. And he sees this guy he keeps coming back and it's bugging him. Okay, that's what he said. It's bothering him. He's, he's, the guy says, you got to say a prayer for me or something. So he finally says, like on the fourth or fifth time where he's resuscitating this guy, he says, okay, say this prayer. And he says, Jesus Christ, I believe you died for my sins and I put my trust in you and take away my sins. And if I do die, I'm going to trust you to take me to heaven. The guy said those words and it slipped back. And so he was pounding on his heart. And when he came back the next time, the fact is he had absolute peace. Okay. He wasn't scared anymore. Okay. Took him a while to get him, the guy finally lived. But this atheist doctor looked at that and he had other cardiology uh, patients that he had the same kinds of experiences with. All I'm saying is that's what he told me. We did a whole show with him on this topic. But um, I'm also, I heard your story about you were at a convention or you were speaking at a conference where you had basically all medical doctors in your audience, and you had one lady who just was telling you she didn't like what you were talking about That's or right. we're going to talk about you. She hadn't even heard your lecture yet. Right. She just heard the topic. You're going to talk about near-death experiences. She said, it's a waste of time. And I mean, she bugged you all day long, okay? Yeah. And you hadn't even given the deal. So when you finally gave the lecture, here's all medical doctors sitting in the audience. What, what happened? Uh, well... A person who I did not know about, so I did not ask this person to give a testimony, but this person across the room got everybody's attention after my lecture was over. This other lady said, I've been to heaven, and I'm up in front, so I see all these heads going. And the one who was so skeptical shouts across the room, 
well, just don't sit there. Tell us about it like that. <laughs> That's my <side> manner. <laughs> and so she started doing it. Well, I walked up to the skeptical one afterwards, and I said, now what do you think? And she was kind of staring ahead, and she kept going, pretty intriguing. And that's like all she said, pretty intriguing. And the, and the woman who gave the testimony, there's no evidence. It was just a personal tale of having been like, uh, well, you know, I'm from Virginia, but I went to New York this summer. You know, it's a tale about another place. Yeah. And she was all ears. All right. We're going to do some more programs on this, but let's, let's start giving me one where you start going into the evidence, because stories are one thing, okay? And uh, with no way to check them, you don't know what to say. But in last how many years, medical doctors and a whole group of scientists have started actually defining what is death, okay? When can we say technically this person is dead, okay? okay. What has to take place? Death goes by different definitions depending on who you're talking about and what definition they're going to live by. Here's a beginning definition all the way up to the worst it can be. The beginning one is a state called near death, hence we get near death experiences. Near death is when you dial 911, call the paramedics, they come to your house, and as far as they can tell in a non-hospital, non-machine atmosphere, you have no pulse, uh, as far as they can tell, no measurable or very, very low blood pressure. If something's not done quickly, near death is defined as a state from which you will almost assuredly die if something doesn't happen quickly. All right, that's the first floor. You're close. Next step, usually people talk about is uh, cessation of heartbeat, and that would be a cardiac arrest. Now, in, there's different kinds of cardiac arrest, but in, with cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, that frankly means your heart's not working. So if your heart's not working, you cannot function very long. Sometimes the estimate is less than five minutes before you start losing uh, vital brain information. A flat heart with an EKG would be a good indication that you're getting very close. Next stage up, flat EEG, no measurable brain activity. Now. Again, this is measurable machine, and somebody might say, well, there might be something else there, but we're not getting a reading. So no brain activity is probably the most evidential in that sort. By the way, and latest, this is just a few decades old information. If you have a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, in studies, the brain, according to the machines, upper brain activity ceases in about 15 to 20 seconds. So if you have the real serious kind of cardiac arrest, 15, 20 seconds, and neither is working. Now, if you have an NDE that lasts, because of what you describe people around you, you know someone says, well, I looked at my watch and you were gone at 10.02, but you, you described something from 10 minutes later. You know, if you had a ventricular fibrillation, uh, a heart arrest, you know that you have no measurable heart or upper brain activity. The last one is the skeptic's favorite, and it's called biological death. And I, I kind of like the way they define it. It's kind of like it begs the question. But biological death is if you had it, you wouldn't be talking about it. There's no return from it. So biological death means ain't no coming back on their definition. So 
near death, heart, brain. We put you in the ground last week. So that's, that's the, the line. And I've argued before in print that you can find near death data at each of these four. And you go, what about the one you can't come back from? I'd say stay tuned because we have data beyond that level too. Yeah. Let's, uh, we only got about three and a half minutes left. So again, why are we even approaching this topic? And uh, we are still haven't given them the good ones, the technical ones yet, okay? What we call the evidential ones that are are persuading people that are skeptics. There's got to be some life after what we're experiencing here, okay? Um, What do you want people to learn from what we're telling them? I think besides just telling a good story, because everybody will listen, that's why these things are on the television stations and interviews. Besides just telling a good story, I I think it's very important that we think about our mortality. And I think it's very important that we think about something afterwards. Just like when someone says to you, you may be working 40 years for the right to retire nicely for the last 15 years of your life. Wouldn't you like to make the right choices for 40 that make you be, be relaxed for the last 15? All right, I turn it around this way. If there's a chance of eternity, how much do you want to prepare here and how much should you be interested for all of eternity if decisions on this side make a difference? Yeah, and we're talking about Jesus and his resurrection because he says, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. If 15 years of, of retirement are good, how good's eternity? Not only that, but then Jesus provided the proof by coming back from being dead right. for three days, Right. okay? He showed us that it's possible, he did it, and he's the one saying, if you believe in me, I'm gonna do that for you too. Right. Okay? Now, in about one and a half minute, give me just a little taste of a near-death experience with a little evidence. With a little evidence. I'll tell you what, to, to, to kind of whet people's appetite, what if I did it this way? What if I give five categories of evidence? Okay. Some skeptics want citation in the room. Now, I don't think that's as good, but some of them want things in the operating room. Uh, I saw this, I saw that, I went back and verified it later, but you couldn't have known that because that happened after you were out. So verification inside the room. One of the two that I think are the most evidential is verification outside the room. While you have a cardiac arrest with ventricular fibrillation, we know that probably you're not gonna be having heart or brain activity within two minutes. You tell me something that happens in the waiting room three floors before below where your family's uh, waiting or something that happens with the babysitter back in your house four miles from here. So that, that's away. And some of these are way away, as in miles, the report. Thirdly, NDEs in the blind especially NDEs and those who have been blind since birth. And the only time they've ever reported sight is during their NDE. And now they've gone back to being blind again because they're alive. So there's the third one. Fourth one, how about, these are rare, but how about near-death experiences where living, healthy people witness a portion of the NDEers NDE? That's one. And then the last one that's beyond that you won't come backstage, what I call twilight zone cases. What if during your NDE, let's say it lasted two minutes, let's just to make something up, 
let's just say you were with your dad and your dad died 10 years ago and your dad says something very, very provocative. Hate to tell you this, son, but tomorrow you're going to get a telegram from your cousin who's been fighting over in Afghanistan for the last year, and you're going to get the word that he died because he's already dead. Nobody knows it. You're going to hear it tomorrow, and it happens. But you learned it today. You weren't irreversibly dead, but your father was, and that's your information. You put all these five together, and it depends on different strokes, different folks. What kind of evidence do you like? These are very, very intriguing. I mean, I've had two cases where as the person is being loaded into the ambulance, they say, I was up above my body and I watched you load me. And I didn't know there was a number on top of this ambulance. Well, yeah, there's numbers on top for tracking if you have to do it with a helicopter or whatever. But the person reported the number on top of that. Well, if you're strapped down down here, someone's not going to be sitting in the car in the ambulance going, uh, car, you know, this is our, what do you think about number 413? You know, you, you don't talk about the number. So near death is a state from which you can reasonably be thought to die if you don't get some immediate intervention, and that's the whole idea of 911. So the five categories, some skeptics actually uh, want verifiable information inside a room while the person is out. Hopefully, <laughs> this is horrible, but hopefully in a state of, of cardiac arrest, ventricular fibrillation, from which they return, but that shows that the heart's not working. In a very short time, in some experiments, 15 seconds, the upper brain activity stops, measurable upper brain activity. So if you're, re if you're reporting something, uh, say a minute, two minutes later, that's highly evidential. But the second category would be, if you're, the material you're reporting is a distance away. So floors in the hospital, back at your house in the city, across the state where a brother's praying for you. A lot of these people are attracted to family members when they, when they uh, say they're up above their uh, body. Okay, third case, Indies in the blind. Fourth case, oh, and in the blind, people gravitate to the cases where the person is congenitally blind from birth. Yeah, you're so, talking about people that cannot see, have a, an experience, and they might go into another state and see a person that they've never seen before and actually see them and they come back and they're still blind, but they describe it. They can describe the color clothes the person was wearing and, and so exactly. this is what we're talking about, okay? Exactly. The fourth one, fourth and fifth are Twilight Zone type ones. Four is cases where someone who's very healthy, in one case it was a nurse, people who are very healthy get drawn into the NDE with the person and said, I didn't know what was going on, but I was watching the person go down the tunnel and I came back with them. You know, so you have, I mean, I've, I've got a case or two here that's like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you're going to make a movie out of that, aren't you? You know, but the last one to me is the most intriguing and that's where somebody else has met. You return from a near death state but you learn some information from somebody who's been dead for two years, 10 years, and they report something that's verifiable. Yeah. And um, th th some of these are very uh, evidential. Yeah, 
And atheists and skeptics have looked at this evidence and, uh, you know, they don't want to say there's an afterlife. But here you have John Beloff in the Humanist magazine. I said this last week, but I want to say it again. In the Humanist magazine, he's argued that the evidence for an afterlife was so strong that humanists should just admit it and attempt to interpret what happens in naturalistic terms. Okay, so we've got skeptics that are taking notice of this and it's busting up their worldview, and they're saying somehow we got to deal with this. Now, let's start with, say, some of these lower categories and give me illustrations, real life, that have been cataloged, documented. Okay, inside the room. There are some cases, I, I don't know what it is, but we've all seen tennis shoes on the roof of buildings, uh, people, you see, you know, girders above your head and somebody will try to flip a penny to get it up there. We do funny things with things above our head. Sometimes near-death uh, patients have been up above their body and they'll say, you know what, funny thing, there is a Jefferson nickel on top of that girder over there and when I saw it, I kind of zoomed in on it and it's a 1988 and sure enough, when the person comes to, they send a janitor up there that was a nickel, all right, 1988. How'd you know that? I saw it. I was up there. Well, kind of hard to say, you know, you start limiting your options when the person reports data. Yeah. Uh, another one, some of them, the, the most interesting ones are not necessarily the highly evidential ones. They're the strange ones. Yeah. Like in one case, the person came to and the doctor came in to talk to him later and they said, we already got figures on that. That machine was plugged in. You, you wouldn't know because you were out during, uh, with anesthesia, but that machine was plugged in. And the patient said, I'm sorry, doctor, the machine was not plugged in. When I was up above my body, I looked over there and I wondered, I don't know if somebody kicked it or what, but the plug was lying on the floor. Now, how would you, how would you know that? And the doctor checked it out? They went and back they... and checked it. The plug was lying on the floor. Yeah. Um, now, this one... This is so close, I guess we could might as well say it's in the room. It actually was through the next wall. But a person was in surgery, and they're up above their body, and they're watching. But when they're in this state, like I say, other world, Narnia, something, they're going, wow. I mean, I guess this is the world I live in, but it, the colors are more realistic. It's whatever. And they don't pay attention to what's going on. I mean, kill me if you want. I'm, I, I'm ready to go. And they drifted over through a wall into another surgical room and they watched a man having his leg amputated. And they described the amputation surgery while they were on the bed in this room. Now that's reported in a book uh, edited by a friend of mine, Janice Holden, who was for years the editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies, the only peer-reviewed medical journal devoted to near-death experiences, and it's reported in this, in this book that's only been out for a year or two. Uh, okay, so those are ones in the room, mm -hmm. outside the room. Uh, there's a very well-known case from years ago where a little girl drowned in a pool. She was known not to have heartbeat for about 20 minutes. There was a physician at the poolside, and they brought her in. As far as they could tell, she had no uh, brain waves because her pupils were fixed and dilated. They put her on a breathing machine, and I've talked to the medical doctor for, for hours, and he said, I would have given her, by the way, he was a pediatric brain specialist, so he had double, a double uh, specialization, and he said, uh, I would have given her a, uh, 
a one in a thousand chance of living, a one in 10,000 chance with brain function. But they hooked her up and very shortly afterwards, I think it was three days, <clears throat> she came to, but spontaneously. They didn't do something new or give her new medicine. She came to and she looks up and she said, hey, you're the doctor that saved me in the, in the, uh, when I was brought in. Thank you. Where's the other doctor, the tall one? And he said, I'll go get him. Now, he was an agnostic. Mm -hmm. And he's thinking, what's this about? And he went down the hall, got the other guy, brought him down, and she talked long enough that these doctors took notes for about an hour. And she described things. One of them was an angel came and talked to me. Well, there's no test for angels, but that is an interesting little testimony. And she said that first night, the angel allowed me to look into my parents' home, and they're starting to say, okay, this is contact points of the real world. So we want to know if there's something verifiable. She talked about where her dad was sitting, what he was doing. Her, her brother went upstairs to play. Her sister went upstairs. Oh, okay, what were they playing with? So they're taking notes. Was it Monopoly? Was it a doll? Was it, what was it? And mom was cooking dinner, okay? What was mom cooking? Oh, it was um, a, a chicken and rice dish chicken and rice okay and then mom and the family comes in oh my baby's all right everything's fine this is wonderful and before they could anybody could talk the doctor said what'd you make for dinner two nights ago i mean it was only two nights before oh hey it was nothing it was uh this chicken and rice dish I got, oh wow now i don't know exactly how far the house house was from the hospital but i'm guessing normal house two three miles anyway and she reported all these things, and she was seven years old when it happened. This has been written up in medical, uh, it's been written up in a medical journal for sure, and she's been a frequent guest on television. This was years ago when it first uh, yeah. started. So there's one from a distance, and there are many impressive distance ones. Yeah, you've got some in other states. Uh, the longest one I've seen is 1,250 miles away. What happened? Well. The person went for surgery, and while they were in the middle of surgery, they, were, they had a cardiac arrest, the bad kind, and they were out for 30 minutes. Now, 30 minutes is a long time. Well, when he and his wife, reported in the same book by Jan Holden, um, he and his wife went up to Milwaukee, I think, to have this surgery, but they had somebody house-sitting for them in Florida. And he just, all of a sudden, when he was up there trying to kill the time, he looked in on his house in Florida and meant, noticed several things the guy was doing and the guy was taking mail and piling it on the dining room table. Not a big deal, but he saw a magazine that was not your normal American looking magazine. He took note of it. When he got out of the hospital, he asked the fellow, what were you doing on this first night? Well, I was doing this. He goes, anything like this? And he did this little tiny drawing and it was very close to what what was going on? He made a drawing before the guy told him what he was doing. Yeah. And that magazine, it looked so different because it was not an American magazine. It came from Western Europe, and it was still sitting there at the dining room table when he got back home. It was 1,250 miles away during a cardiac arrest, which means it's one of the most highly evidential ones. Now, here's one that's a little out, but it's a little closer, um, and it's a cute one, told in the same book by uh, Jan Holden. By the way, in that book, 109 cases, in order to be included in that book, anything the NDE or reports has to be verified by a third party or you don't get into the book. Mm -hmm. So pretty good uh, source there. 
this, this woman was going in to be operated on, and her two grandmothers and her father were present. I don't know how many others, but those three for sure. And after they took her for surgery, they went down to the hospital cafeteria. Her dad was a smoker. Her one grandmother used to be a smoker. And the third one would all, was known around the family. I wouldn't touch those cancer sticks. I've never smoked one in my life, and I'm sure not going to start now. Always complaining. Don't mention cigarettes around her. You know, it's going to be horrible. So she's there, and she all of a sudden zips down to where they're eating. And I guess they're pretty nervous, pretty serious surgery. And dad pushes away from the table and says, I'm going to go outside and get a smoke. The grandmother who used to smoke said, I'm going with you. Can I have one of your cigarettes? And the third one who said, I won't touch those cancer sticks, said, I think I need a cigarette too. And they went outside, and the young lady watched all three of them smoke. And later she said, were you smoking? Yes, dear, I was smoking. Now, some of them are just kind of funny like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but she was out. So... I want That's you to at a distance. I want you to stop right there because sure. we're going up the ladder of, yep. of tough cases, okay? And we've only got about seven minutes left in this program. Right. And I want to talk about why we're even presenting this information, okay? You've got people that are Christian. You've got people that are non-Christians. You've got people that are saying, goodness sakes, what does this mean, okay? And why are we actually doing this program and telling them this information? What's the bottom line as far as we're concerned here? I think the bottom line, Christians like to talk, we use the word apologetics, we like to talk about evidence, and some of it's for religion in general, some of it's for Christianity in particular. Religion in general might be uh, the Kalam cosmological argument. Where Does they, God exist? During the Middle Ages, they were Muslim philosophers who brought the argument to the fore. Today, it might be intelligent design, it might be fine-tuning, and it just says some religion is probably true, but doesn't distinguish between religions. But then when Christians talk about the resurrection of Jesus, or was Jesus a miracle worker? Uh, did Jesus predict his resurrection ahead of time? We're talking about things that are more specifically Christian. So I think NDEs are in that general category. It would be next to intelligent design, fine-tuning, the Kalam cosmological argument, because for atheists, the one-two punch that they don't want to be true. Number one, God. Number two, afterlife. So they're the two things Bertrand Russell said that's what atheists don't like. First of all, we're talking about a category that's very important in terms of philosophy of religion. But for my interest in resurrection, I would argue if there's an afterlife, don't do this thing with me where you say, well, wow, the evidence for the resurrection is the best evidence I've ever seen, but I don't believe in that realm. Okay, if I already show you there's a realm, now are you more interested in my data? And I think it gives me a real segue into talking about the resurrection. Yeah, and I think we have to talk about one of the things that uh, you, you, uh, you describe is that when you were in your kind of skeptical years at Michigan State, yep. okay, and uh, you, were, you were doing all kinds of research on the resurrection. Right. One of the things that stood out to you was that Jesus Christ, among all the religious leaders in the world, is the only one that predicted in advance that he would die and he would rise again. And then he's the only one that actually did die, and there's evidence that he did 
uh, come forth from the grave and he spoke to people and they touched him and uh, he gave them information. And it wasn't just one person or two persons. It was groups of 12, groups of 500 or more. And uh, women, men, different circumstances, uh, walking along a path down at the beach or near the lake, all of these different things about Jesus. And it struck you that he was different from all the other religious leaders. He was unique. There are about six to eight different categories. For example, we often think, oh, a bunch of founders of major world religions. Not all of them. Some of them were founded by prophets, but some of them at least had to claim to be God, right? Jesus is the only founder of a major world religion who said he was deity. He's the only one. I mean, it wouldn't be said, think about the uh, Jewish faith. You wouldn't say that about Moses, wouldn't say it about David, wouldn't say it about Daniel. They're great people, but they never said they were the Son of God. That would just be sickening to them, to to someone to... So Jesus is in a separate category. Now, anybody can claim anything. To me, his two most unique claims were he's the Son of God and he holds the door to eternal life. Almost every religious founder says, I'm bringing you the path to life. And and here's the path. Jesus is the only one who says, I am the path. He makes an ontological comment about, yeah, we, some people want keys. I am the key. Uh, I'm the shepherd. I'm the only way into the sheep pen. He says, I will bring you in. I will give you the eternal life as a gift free if you believe in me. Right. As opposed to good works or something else. So these are true. But I think anybody can claim anything. Madmen can claim things. But when you, as the old saying goes, put your money where your mouth is, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then you do? It's like, whoa, who are you? Because right away you intuitively know if you can predict it, that means you're a player in the saga. And you know, if you know what's going to happen, you are clued into the worldview significance of this event. It's not just the resurrection. It's the resurrection of the one who claimed to be the son of God, who claimed to hold the keys to the kingdom. Oh, that one. Okay, now go, keep talking. See, there's, once you get the worldview around it, it becomes a lot more. And to me, the NDEs help weave that worldview around the event of which the resurrection is the center. Yeah, and tell me, and tell the folks that are listening, how the skeptics are reacting to this information. They, like you say, if you're an atheist, there's two things you don't want. You don't want God and you don't want to have an afterlife. What is this evidence doing to their views? Playing with it. What because are they, you're what are they citing saying? evidence where you're not supposed to have evidence. By the way, if those are the first two no-nos, God and afterlife, the next one is an objective ethical standard. Because I don't want to be told what I can do with my life and what I can't. What follows from resurrection? God, afterlife, and a standard, an ethical standard. You know, I'm not happy with what you're doing. So again, you might introduce me to somebody who's a potential candidate you know, for, for a marriage, but if I don't want to be married, I'm gonna resist, even though you're my best friend, I'm going to resist your suggestions if I don't wanna get married. Give me a couple so. of atheists that are uh, talking like that. What are they saying? Well, again, the one I started out with this this uh, series on uh, NDEs, I think the thing they say is, the real honest ones are going to say, you've got some pretty good evidence for an afterlife, you do. 
And I don't know right now what I would say against it. In fact, I don't have to give you any any particular theory against it because any theory will work because there's no world like the one you're talking about. So my in my world, which is the workaday world where I've never seen Narnia or Oz, um, I'm not inclined to believe it because there's no world. Now, if I say, uh, excuse me, between nine and 20 million Americans claim to have had an NDE, I think you better be a little more open to this world. I think the confluence of these things might make me want to, to use my analogy, might make me want to get married a little bit more if that's the way my life is going to have final meaning. Yeah. You want to say, I do to Jesus. I do to Jesus. Exactly right. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, said there's two things that atheists don't want to talk about. One, does God exist? Number two, is there an afterlife? Okay. And we're talking about, is there an afterlife? And is this thing called near-death experiences providing data that we ought to be aware of. And you have said that uh, in a prestigious book, they said that between 9 and 20 million Americans have had near-death experiences. Okay. Now, you have been cataloging these things and scientifically as we've gone down through the years, the medical community has come up with levels here of uh, what, is, what is called death, okay? And give me the five stages. So we go from near death, which is at the bottom, to you're dead in a doornail, you're not coming back, okay? What happens in between? Uh, the second one up from the bottom would be heart death. The third one up from the bottom will be brain death. And the fourth one is irreversible biological death. Okay. So that's the key. All right. We're up to what number now? We're doing the third category up from the bottom, which is NDEs and the blind. All right. Now, we're talking about blind people that are on a table someplace and the doctors are working on them and they have a near-death experience where they go out of the room or they're in the room or they go someplace and they are blind, but they, in this case, can see and they see things and they come back and they re revive somehow and they continue to live and they can tell you what they saw. They're still blind. Okay. Give me a couple of examples. Yeah, probably the best one in this category. Well, I'll, I'll give you two. One is a, uh, a, a sightless person from a birth who was given a gift and the gift was a tie. Somebody gave them a tie, and when they had the near-death experience, the uh, tie was still sitting there, and they saw the tie for the first time, as opposed to unwrapping it and feeling it. They saw the tie, and they were able to give uh, a pretty minute description of how the colors went in and out, what kind of design was on the tie, and then, of course, went back to not seeing anything after that. A more detailed one from a person who was blind was from a woman whose two best friends had preceded her in death. All three were blind. But, and this has been published in more than one place, um, she had a near-death experience, a pretty, a pretty involved one, and she saw both of her friends for what seemed like seconds or a minute before she kind of, before she came back. Now she'd been best friends with these people. And when you're blind, you know, you, you can feel somebody's face, you can feel a contour, you can have somebody even say, 
another blind person could say, oh, my hair is not, it's kind of, you know, clogged up, I need to comb this or whatever. You can hear descriptions that you can get a word picture for, but she saw her friends for the first time. So she noticed contours and things about their face that she never knew about them before because they're not the kind of things that you would talk about. Uh, a small mole over here or something that caught her attention. And she came back and reported what both of the young ladies looked like. Now again, you can know what your best friend looks like, but when you see them for the first time, inevitably something different is going to be reported that you'd never picture them having before that. You know, uh, darker skin than you thought, lighter skin than you thought, uh, younger looking, or you look way too young for your age, or you know, whatever. And that was the case with her. Yeah. So. The next category is the first of the two of what I call the Twilight Zone cases. And I, I should say something here at the beginning. Um, I'm giving some of the sources for these things, but I'm, I, what, what often in the year who give reports do, I'm changing some of the circumstances just a little bit so as to uh, protect the anonymity of anybody who doesn't want their story getting out there. So I'm trying to be very yeah. selective. You've had but, how many that you've been involved with yourself personally that you've tracked? Uh, where I've talked to the person personally, dozens, but I've collected over a hundred evidential cases that go across the, all the categories. Okay, so you yourself have been involved in tracking some I of have this. been involved and I've interviewed the people. And you know what, we started out our first program on NDs with two kind of categories. The ones that were really impressive, the woman who didn't want to come back to see her newly born child, that impresses people in a way that is different than the way you're impressed with evidence. Um, I have been over and over in my own interviews, I'm very impressed with people who tell certain private things that are not evidential, but when you hear them, you think, that would affect me for the rest of my life. So a lot of them are that kind too. Yeah, I wanna, uh, before you move on, I, I like that thing because you really haven't uh, described this, but I don't know if you would say it's the majority, but one of the characteristics of near-death experiences, at least for Christians, Okay, the, the ones that have the good experiences, we've had hell experiences as well, okay, in this thing. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about that, but just a little bit. Uh, the thing is, the Christians that have had some of these experiences, when you ask them, would you want to come back to be with your new baby? Would you want to be back with your family? And she loves her family, but they all say no, I'll let my husband take care of them because where I'm at, I'd rather stay there. Now that's really an interesting comment and you get this from multiple uh, witnesses that have had these kind of uh, near-death right. experiences. But they will often add when you say, wouldn't you have been worried about them? They'd say, you know what? After being at that place and seeing the symmetry of life, I was sure that whatever worked out, it would come out in the end. In other words, they were making a comment on the problem of suffering, that I know things will work out in the end, which is a teleological expression of why I don't have to worry about them back on earth. It's like C.S. Lewis. He described in one of his little books the fact of, of people seeing colors in a deeper way, a more uh, real way if yes. you want. Yes. Talk about that book. What was yeah, the title? It's fantastic. And that's again back to my, have you ever been to Narnia? Have you ever seen Oz question? Because in C.S. Lewis's little book, The Weight of Glory, his famous sermon that he preached in Oxford, he says, 
we revel in colors. But how would you like to be in the color so fully that you're part of the color? Or you hear music. Instead of hearing the music out there, you're part of the symphony. And I think his point is, who knows? C.S. Lewis, you, you know, when he describes way, uh, his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about what sounds exactly like a near-death experience in a trench in World War I. So he probably had one. But people, that, that's very, very common. They'll have these experiences and they'll say, I've just got to tell you, the colors there are, well, they're deeper than... Never mind, you won't understand. You gotta be there. And they always do that. It's not evidential, you're just listening to them. But that that sermon is so good because he says, I want to imbibe, I want to smell, I want to be part of it. And it's like, wow, that's yeah. a great life. All right, let's go back to these uh, kind of yep. like twilight zone yep. experiences. These these are just unbelievable experiences. Yeah, Raymond Moody tells one in the category of healthy people who observe somebody else's NDE. All right, there's a case he describes where a very elderly mother slash grandmother is in a hospital bed or in a bed at home, and she's surrounded by, I believe, five of her family members. And she's come to the end of her life, and she's lived a very good life, and everyone's sad, but they're sorry she's suffering so much, and, you know, it, it's, it's time. You know, so people are dealing with this, and all of a sudden, she's lying peacefully on the bed. And all of a sudden, she sits up. Only she doesn't sit up. Her body is still back on the pillow. But what looks like a, a spirit, kind of a wispy, and they're looking around the room and they're going. And they see a light over her bed, a, a, a spinning orb. And again, they don't want to talk. And they're going. And the orb elongates into a tunnel and grandma, spiritual grandma, she smiled, she sees it and she's so excited and they watch as she comes up out of the, presumably out of her body and she starts going up this, this tunnel and they're all looking and watching, watching, watching and it disappears. Now, if that's true, she looks like she's the one going to Narnia, but they got to see over the divide, and they got to see. It's like Moses, you know. He couldn't get into the promised land, but he could look over. Mm -hmm. uh, they got a chance to look, and they were so happy because Grandma looked so pleased. And in this case, she actually did die then. She did die. Okay, yes. but you're saying these people watched it. They, five healthy people watched Grandma go. Wow. And they were all too happy to have the funeral because it was a joyous occasion. Yeah. I, I find this very interesting. That the Christians that have these wonderful experiences do not fear death anymore. And it, it reminds me of the disciples that it seemed like they didn't care about this category of death. They all knew they probably would die, and they all did except John. The fact they were all martyred in gruesome ways, but... People that talked about them, their friends, the apostolic fathers that talked about, oh, I knew them, you know, and Peter didn't feel this, and Paul didn't think that was a serious thing at all. They did not fear death at all. They kind of looked forward to That's it. That's right. Now, in Paul's case, many Bible commentators, New Testament scholars, 
believed Paul had a near-death experience. And, and the interesting thing is, some of the older commentaries before NDEs were anything, and the comment uh, by people who don't think much of NDEs, but they'll say in the commentary, they'll say, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says he visited the third heaven, he says it was 14 years ago. You know, chronologically, this is the person talking, they'll say chronologically, that works out to just about the time when he would have been stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra. So maybe he had, and back then when they're writing this up, it's like, maybe he had one of those visions where people saw not knowing. Now, if Paul had had one of those, now I ask if 2 Corinthians 12 was a near-death experience, if it was. I mean, Stephen looks up to heaven, right. sees Jesus on the right hand of God, drama going up the tunnel. So, so I'm wondering if Paul had that, does that cause Paul, he sees the resurrected Jesus, so real he's blinded, he has an NDE, he had, a, he had a twofer, right? He had two of these. Does that allow him to write my favorite verses, Philippians 1, 21 and 23, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, as I say to a lot of people, to live as Christ makes a good message. You don't hear a lot of preaching on to die is gain, but then two verses later he says, I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is, and there's an emphatic Greek expression here, which is often translated, I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is better, comma, far better. So I wonder if having looked over, that's what NDEers say, far better. Now, now, confessedly, he may have gotten that from the trip to Damascus and, and knowing Jesus is in another realm, and he got to see him briefly before he was blinded. But um, yeah, I think these guys know what's going on. How, how many of the others were, were stoned and left for dead or things happened and they also knew about it, but they were sure convinced of the other reality. All right, give me another extreme, extreme example that was tracked of a near-death experience. Well, the last category is where the person who has it is near death but they report data from somebody who is irreversibly dead, and you'll never see him again in this world. And there's a number of those. Now, the example I gave, hate to tell you this, but your cousin was just killed in Afghanistan, and, and you're going to hear about that. You know, the, the person you might meet, <clears throat> it's not Jesus for sure, but I just thought as I said that, Look at when uh, Jesus took Peter aside and said, they're going to come and take you in a way, John 21, where you don't want to be taken. He predicted the death by which Peter would die. To, to, uh, and then Peter, just reading last night, where Peter says, this tent's going to be, uh, it's going to be taken from me pretty soon. I'm going to be, as, my, as the Lord told me. So when someone says, you're going to get a telegram and it, and it happens, or sometimes not quite the same as near-death experiences, but what sometimes referred to as post-death visions, where somebody gets a 10-second meeting with somebody the day of the funeral. There are a number of stories where they're sitting there in the person's home, and everyone's going to be getting their cars and going home the next day, and the funeral was today. And there are a number of stories where three of them are in the living room, five of them are in the living room, and the wife, the grandmother, appears in the room briefly for five seconds, and someone says, are you really here? And sometimes they don't even talk. And they walk, walk over and pick up a hairbrush and walks over and drops it in their lap. And everybody sees the person move an object or just the fact that more than one has seen them. But the point is, they don't ever come back. So they're irreversibly dead. So those sorts of 
Twilight Zone, Dad. There's a famous case where in one of those where the fellow saw his dad, the family had been trying to solve a will, um, but they couldn't find the writing. Dad had put it somewhere and nobody could find it. When the son sees his dad, the son comes back for the near-death experience, dad told him it was sewn into the inner pocket of one of his coats. Hopefully they didn't throw it away, and they hadn't. And they found it, and they got the, they got the document out. So the, the key is that the person who gives the information is irreversibly dead. Some of these are two years, most of them are two, three, five, but occasionally you get a 10 or a 15. I know one that was 49 years mm -hmm. later. The had been dead for 49 years. The person was dead for 49 years. It was his mother, and she died in childbirth. And before he was old enough to walk and talk, his father had already remarried. So mom's pictures were all out of the house, and the new wife, by that time, w the pictures were in the house. And when he had a near-death experience and say, said, I met my mom, the aunt, who understood that her sister's pictures had not been around the house because her brother-in-law had remarried, she came over with a family album and said, which one did you see? And he picked his mother out of the book, but they didn't talk about his mother only to keep things, you know, so that was another one, but she'd been dead for 49 years. This man yeah. had a heart attack, and so he was presumably 49 years old. All right, what do skeptics do with this kind of evidence? I hope they're uneasy. Mm-hmm. Buddy, what, are they, what do they say? Them, what do they say in their magazines and articles and so on? Oh, they'll just usually say things like, oh, it's a bunch of baloney. Here, here's the big objection in your death experiences. They'll say, it's hearsay. It's hearsay. Or they'll say, we've had experiments, and this is true. There's a number of hospitals around the world, Western Europe and the U.S., North America, where they put computers up in the rafters and they're saying, well, if you were up above your body, what was that random five-digit number that keeps floating around there? And nobody's ever reported the number yet. But now there really is a story about a penny. There really is a story about a quarter. You didn't tell the story about the lady that went and looked at the top of something. I just realized that one too, and it's in the same book by Jan Holden that I mentioned earlier. This, this woman is up above her body and she says, you know, I'm obsessive compulsive. I have OCD. And she said, I looked down on the top of a medical machine that was six to eight feet tall, and they, the hospital rivets numbers so they can keep track of all their things, and it was on the top. So having OCD, she said, I have a habit of memorizing long numbers. And there was a 12-digit number riveted on the top of the machine. And when she comes to, she says to the nurse, she says, write this down. The number is 367432, and the nurse writes it down and puts it away. Well, a couple days later, they came to get that machine to take it back out, and the nurse said, whoa, 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 let me look. Number's exactly right, 12 numbers. So I mean, that's another one, 12 numbers at random from up by the ceiling. Okay, what do you want the person that does not know Jesus, has not thought about spiritual thing, has not thought there's an afterlife, what do you want them to walk away with from what we've said today? I would say, before you even look at resurrection, if there's an afterlife, you're playing Russian roulette if you don't, exa if you don't check into it and see what does this mean for me. Because if there's an afterlife, especially things that point to a worldview that goes with it, God, intelligent design, ethics, this is part of a system I need to know more about the world. But now, if I look at NDEs and I look at the resurrection too, 
Jesus is looking really, really good to me. I know a, a very well-known skeptic. I, I know him. I've had hours of conversation with him. And it's the NDE thing that brought him to believe in the resurrection. He thinks the evidence for the resurrection is great, but he's, he's a serious skeptic. But he thinks the resurrection is great, but he's convinced because he came there through the NDE. So I think it's a door to evidence, and I think it should be something that at least makes us open to data, open to what keys are you carrying around with, and what doors are you trying to unlock with this data. If it leads to Narnia, if it leads to the uh, Yellow Brick Road and the Emerald City, um, hopefully I think that would, would be the outcome of this, that somebody would be so challenged by the data that would it would make them want to take a look at their life and consider living differently. Yeah. Uh, folks, I'll just leave you with this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus is the only religious leader that gave you evidence that he can pull that off if you put your trust and belief in him. Gary, thank you for being with us and giving us all this great information. Thank you. Had a great time.